This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. We're always, and this is how, you know, one, by now, by our age, Sharat, we kind of figure this out. There's always going to be a gap. There's always going to be discrepancy between what the quote-unquote, the ego or the self needs and the other that is trying to be united with, trying to come to terms with, trying to understand. But I think it would be fair and be much, much healthier if we just accept that I'm lacking and with my own void, this other person in front of me is lacking their own void and we just can't be using each other to fulfill that, <laughs> you know? And I think accepting that, accepting one's quote-unquote castration, right? Now we're going to get into sexist language, but this is the residue of his Freudian attachment, right? Well, well that's the on uh, great joy, by the way. <laughs> castration. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ahmad Fat Rahmat and welcome to Night School, the show that explores key themes in history, the social sciences and the humanities. Together with Sharat Kutten, we critically unpack theories, frameworks and social phenomena, the better to understand how society works. Each week we discuss a classic text, theme or an idea that we hope to shed light on the world around you. It's been a while since we mentioned this guy's name, Sharat, but let's get back to it. His name is Lacan, and this week we're going to talk about his notion of self and other. Or oh, why? Why? I'm going to ask you why. <laughs> why resurrect this man? But okay, let's do it. Well, because... No, he's fascinating. I must admit, he is I, I fascinating. Think so too. I think and so too. And he's had such a profound effect on the field of uh, theory. But uh, at the same time, he does seem so difficult, he is. But contrary to what people might think, I generally have very low tolerance for, you know, academic speak, right? When it gets too jargon laden and it gets too caught up in academic rhetoric. But I feel that with him, it's worth the patience and it's paid off each time. So I've had very, very difficult times trying to process the text. But every time at the end, I feel like I see the world differently. So that's why I keep going back to him. Well, that's a tremendous, um, you know accolade for any thinker that, you know, that it, there's a payoff and the payoff comes with you thinking differently about it. Well, asking better questions, perhaps, yeah, framing yeah. things in more intelligent, productive ways. Yeah. yeah and, okay. uh, and this is where I think theory is always important, you know, and I know that theory gets a uh, bad rap because sometimes it gets too, it has this perception of being too detached from the world or something like that. But it is all about seeing things differently, right? And I think that's what motivates me as a teacher and also as a student, right? Just being able to think differently and having different ways to connect the dots of like what may appear as taken for granted mundane things. So, yeah. Okay, so having made those initial apologies, now what are we going to be looking at? Is there a particular book and an essay that uh, you're going to be looking at today? Let's just meditate on how he tries to frame the distinction between self and other. And the typical way that we think about this is that they are two different entities. You, Sharat, is other to me. I am other to you. But he's going to give us a counterintuitive twist in that there is no real distinction between self and other. You have to think of it as this constantly interchanging dynamic that is occurring through language, wherein the self is actually the other and the other is actually the self, and this position continuously interchanges. Right, so it's a mutually constitutive, right? Is that the expression? Uh, that basically you can't talk about the self without positing another 
Correct. But they are almost the same void. So they're different standpoints of the same lack, as you speak. No, now we're getting a bit Lacanian. <laughs> but the idea here is that I don't... Uh, granted, is different and mutually constitutive, but the self and other here occupies the same space, right? So in a sense where I think that the other that I'm trying to speak to is somewhere else and I desire the other, wherein what Lacan wants to show is that there is no real gap. The self and the other is basically the same thing, right? So I am projecting the otherness of this thing that I desire and that in effect, it comes out of the same logic almost, yeah. So there's no inside outside, there's no self other and it's just the way in which language positions us at different moments in the same dynamic, yeah. I wonder if we could sort of step back from sure. this formulation because it seems quite a rich one, but like you say, kind of intuitive. What is the problem of the self and other that requires, you know, thinking through in how, in what sense is Lacan's formulation an advance on previous formulations of the problem? Yeah. So we tend to think of different people as different entities. That's part of the problem in the sense where, you become very, very, uh, the you, not you, but the other becomes either obscured or exotified or how would you say, reified into something else, into something so different that we cannot understand or we cannot really reach or communicate. So that's the first thing. And that's, the other thing is that there is this idea of a self that is oftentimes elevated to the point of like being very, very, Sacred or spiritual because there's this internal universe that only we know and that is impenetrable to the world, right? And which is a kind of solipsism, which is a kind of narcissism. And by using what Lacan offers instead, what we have is that self and other is constantly this thing that we circulate around, right? That in effect, we are more quote-unquote intersubjective than we think. That there is no containment of the self just as there's no containment of the other. And that a lot of human errors, errors in communication, even world conflicts happen because the other is rarefied and the self is privileged. Okay, I want to start with that notion just now you had of containment because uh, it does seem like the body is a container and that's apparent to all of us. We see ourselves and associate ourselves with this body, right? And the, the and other we have is, an inner monologue. Yeah, and we have an inner monologue and the other bodies and they you know, to the extent that they have inner monologues that burst forth, we hear them. And so, you know, the self and other, I think for many people, are it's kind of unproblematic. Isn't it? yes, yeah. yeah, it's commonsensical. It's intuitive. You see others and you see yourself and you know society is made of maybe a series of selves, but, um, you know, and so what is the problem? I mean, let's, where is this individual let, self not coincide with the body? Let's start with that particular point. How do we know our body? We have to look at the mirror. What do we see in the mirror? Well, you can look down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, some of us have pot bellies that obscure bits of ourselves. <laughs> but you but you know, most look, of us can actually. But you see. can't look at the back of you. You can't look. You have to turn to the side. And even when you turn to the side, it's an awkward perspective. A lot of the times, your body is quote unquote other because you don't have a perspective that would give you a total view of what you're inhabiting. Then the question comes up like, well, who's giving you this? total view, right? It is, quote-unquote, the other. 
right? Your mom and dad, maybe in the first instance. Or society, mm-hmm. right? And let's expand that analogy more. Who fashions our identity? Parents, family, kin, society, institutions. We rely on this quote unquote something else, which Lacan is going to call the other, to which our identity depends on, right? So one of the correctives to that perspective, very commonsensical perspective, I have an inner monologue, I inhabit flesh and bone and blood. Surely this is my own universe. No, when you think about it, a lot of our self-perception comes from this quote-unquote other sphere. And this other sphere, because it cannot be reified to one person or one thing, right, is this thing that is quote-unquote imagined. And some poor person or poor institution or country or other race is going to be <laughs> going to be posited in that quote-unquote other void in order for our identity to work, right? So already that's where the Lacanian purchase is, right? There's no self that is automatically contained. It requires on this dialectic with quote-unquote another. In order for us to know who we are, we have to assume an other perspective. Right, so no matter what it is, like I am, let's say a Malay, it requires a non-Malay to kind of give me that perspective of what it means to be a Malay, right? Or the ideal Malay to kind of tell us what it means to be this identity. And similarly, a man, woman, similarly rich, poor, so on and so forth. There's always this other perspective that's inhabiting that's constituting the self, that the me. Yeah. Okay, so okay, that seems understandable, or you know, at some level. But isn't there enough that coincides between the body and the the sense of self and and the identities that you know that we hold on to that make us coherent? I mean, it is worthwhile talking about a charade. Is it worthwhile talking about a you know? Uh, for Ramad. I mean, isn't that, isn't that that? It is worthwhile, but the worthwhileness is premised on imagination, on fantasy. And there's no point at which this fantasy does not require another standpoint. When you say fantasy, you do mean like cosplay fantasy, like <laughs> I dress myself up but as Theon Greyjoy. In less animated ways, because I mean, we think about change a lot who we were before, who we are now, that requires projections of who we were in the past. That requires input from friends and in wanting to go forward. We buy new things, own new things, travel new places. There's always a fashioning that's going on that, granted, can be called a charade, but is taking place in this interesting flux, right? And it's not a substance anymore. We're talking about a certain discourse. We're talking about constellation of memories. We're talking about you know, the opinion of people who count. So at that point, yeah, there is a Sharat, there is an Ahmad for Rahmat, but it is in flux and it is always in negotiation with this quote-unquote and other. You know, I don't know why I reached for Theon Greyjoy instead of, say, Jon Snow. I mean, I wouldn't be better be Jon Snow than it would be a Theon Greyjoy because he's, you know, not whole, as we know, as from, if you follow... Know, Game of, don't you don't follow Game of Thrones? No. Oh, my goodness. Oh, no, no. <laughs> he's lost some essential bits of himself, unfortunately. But <laughs> that's it, too. I think a lot of our struggles with trying to stabilize our identity will be shaken by how our body always escapes or exceeds description or awareness, right? Uh, Illness is one. Age is another. Desire is another as well. Sometimes when you spot a certain scar you didn't see before or trying to come to terms with recovery from a surgery or something, there's always something about our body that doesn't quite 
withstand description or assumption. And that to me is a very interesting problem, right? Because what we consider to be our sanctuary, right? the body being this house, quote unquote, for the soul or whatever, is going to that, that presumption can easily be challenged by just the fact that so much of our body escapes our control. Yeah, that's actually not as easy to appreciate as you, you make it sound because even though, I mean, there are instances like the phantom limb phenomena, right? The people lose a limb and you think, well, okay, so you chop your body off, it's material and that's the limit of your body. But actually people go on to feel pain from things that are not even there anymore, mm-hmm. right? So the phantom limb being that which the brain continues to map its uh, outer limits by, you know? And yeah, it does make you think that, mm, okay, the body and the mind are slightly different. They're not exactly mapped on each other in a complete sense. Yeah, or, or if they, or when they do happen, there's always a lag. There's always a lag of perception. There's always a lag of familiarity. And there's always this weirdness that I think we've all encountered in a very quotidian way. Like looking in the mirror for too long will, will make you think things, right? Or Yeah, like I need to go on a diet. <laughs> Well, that's, exactly. usually my, that's usually my out, the outcome from looking at these, you know, full-length mirrors. Like, oh, really? <laughs> but that's, that's an interesting perspective in that, like, why do you need to go on a diet, right? What's the thought process there? Like, who's the conversation happening with when we're having that, right? Uh, well, experts in magazines on health <laughs> who tell me that I'm way but, off but, my uh, But some advice is more, weight. some advice stand out more than others, too. So True. we, we, and sometimes I don't care for it, right? But then... Other question here, again, is that, I'll just do the giveaway here. The other is basically the reworking of the Freudian unconscious and Lacanian frame. There is that, the desire of the other that's moving us, right? That we're not quite as good looking as we should be, perhaps, or not as quite as whatever else is matching the ideal. And there's that anxiety, right? And at this point, there's no even a tangible physical other out there. It's just the ego and the void that is trying to circulate around, right? But Speaking of voids, let's turn to the, some ads before we continue the conversation. So we'll pause now for Night School at Mamat Fort Rahma. And alongside me, as usual, is Sharat Kutten, this BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, I'm Hamad Fort Rahma, alongside Sharkatin this week, and we are discussing self and other in the Lacanian frame, or the ego and the other, or subjectivity, where the self and the other split, inherently split. And this, as Lacan theorized, is our essential condition. And this goes against to the commonsensical perception that self and the other are separate entities, right? That we are mutually constituted by this interchanging of standpoints, right? And this is something that we can avoid. And the first part of the show, we just went through an overview of the concept and how it works. And we return to discuss this further in the second part of the show. What comes to mind, Sharad? Well, the first thing is, is Lacan talking about the individual and can that be extrapolated to the group? So because we often talk about how we, you know, create others in terms of, say, refugees or foreigners. These are the others of the nation, right? So there's, well, I don't know, you make it into a verb, it's othering Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. such. Can you take that Lacanian perspective to a kind of a collective sense or is it, are we really talking about the individual? Oh, definitely it's... There's never really the individual in the Lacanian context. In fact, the idea that we are very, very unique and distinct is a problem. That's an outcome of a narcissism that for Lacan is is going to impede a lot of our self-understanding, actually, because the individual presumes like, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be in this way, but there is an extent to which when we think of 
unique individuals we think of like discrete entities, right? And he really wants to warn us against that. And I want to go back to the first part of the show where I talked about the mirror stage, where you are given an identity from how your parents first view you, right? And there's a visual element to this, right? Because how you look like matters at that point. Are you fully functioning? What is your race? Who do you look like? Do you look like your mother, your father? What is your gender? So on and so forth. A lot of our earliest arrival to recognition is specular. It is about how we're seen. But this, if we take a broader context, is quote-unquote socially constructed, right? So at our earliest moment of individuation, we're already absorbed into some sort of a social structure. And this is where, quote-unquote, the other is, for Lacan, most obvious. Because society is always going to construct itself around this, quote-unquote, otherness, this sort of void of description that we need to, in order to communicate, because when we speak, there's at no point at which there is no quote-unquote other. But the fact that this can happen is evidence of a void, right? So the reason why we have to keep communicating is because there's nothing that can plug that void, right? So this is how it works. Like, <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's a difficult... I'm, I'm, I'm sure, listening, sure. I'm listening to tell you. Okay, the two things that come to mind immediately, because in this kind of sociological tradition, much of what you say is easily assimilable, right? So you know that individuals, I mean, in a sociological sense, they are individuals and they are socialized, meaning that the identity of an individual, their, their behavior is in part determined or maybe large part determined by the cultural and social milieu and, and the structures that are provided by that. So that's not problematic. But I somehow suspect that Lacan is saying something more than Correct. what sociologists are saying about the creation of identity structures and, you know, the reproduction of identity structures or even the change that happens in our identity structures as a result of the changing environment or, you know, events that might impede on your own identity. I mean, as individuals might encounter them, so trauma and so on and so forth. So all that is very easy to understand in a sociological frame. The psychosexual dynamic frame that, if that's what you call it, that Lacan is plotting seems to be at variance from that or is, is an addition to that. And okay, I don't quite good, understand that's that. Way, that's a good way to segue into where the other comes in, in that I think insofar as we are socially constructed, that our identities come from external influences and we quote unquote internalize them into our personal identities, then there's a lot that Lacan has in common with sociology, right? Lacan would say more specifically to use sociological parlance that we are linguistically constructed, that what we internalize, the social that we internalize occurs in codes and symbols and signifiers, basically, what holds meaning, right? So language is very key in that. The main difference is that for Lacan, there's always a limit to what can be socially constructed. And that limit is the other. Because granted, we are going to be imprinted by social forces, but there's always going to be a point at which that stops. And society is going to organize things as a way to cope with that inability to close itself. So the inability to define what's Malay, right? The inability to define what's whatever identity, right? Is the limit to which society can fully construct its meaning, right? Because if it was such that we are just going to be automatically sucked into a system, then 
there's no need to question. But the fact that we can question means that, okay, social construction is happening, but it's also a point at which we want to address, you know, gaps in that. And that happens through, quote unquote, the other. Yeah. So... I mean, okay, let's yeah, just put it this on. way, because sure. that's a lot, again, it's a lot sure, sure. to take on. But is there a way of applying this framework to, say, literature or thing or social phenomena that will help us understand what is it that Lacan gives us that, say, sociologists haven't been able to give us? Mm-hmm. So the first thing would be the quote-unquote psychology of it. So the problem tends to have been the question of what aspect of our feelings, quote-unquote, is necessarily social if we are so individuated. For example, trauma, like you said, right? That is the point at which society cannot quite construct the meaning, right? So the effect is such that it's hard to talk about. The effect is such that the meaning that is supposed to be derived from say, a genocide or a murder and so on and so forth, cannot quite be closed. Therefore, there is anxiety. Therefore, there is a lot of sadness. Therefore, there is a lot of emotions, right? But what makes it difficult to be closed is the fact that the discourse cannot quite construct what it needs to construct given that there is this other, right? So it is a more, to me, a fine-tuning of the social construction thesis. The second thing is that There's always this question that I keep getting from my students, which I think is really a brilliant question. And that is, after you explain the identity socially constructed, the next question is, well, who is constructing it? The classical Marxist line says, well, capitalism, right? But who constructs the capitalists, right? Surely, the people who have the most power in society are not immune to social construction as well, right? And that, to me, requires a positing of a different element, undergirding the entire social formation, right? And that is, quote-unquote, the other. The other that is even susceptible or that even the most powerful in society is acceptable to, right? In the sense that nobody is outside it, right? And it is around this void. The social construction is organized, right? So, for example, the fact that you cannot say certain words in fear of blasphemy, right? Or you cannot say certain words in fear of transgressing a certain social context, right? Why? Because underlying it, there's really no foundation to those things, right? But what explains the strong reactions to, say, blasphemy or to, say, cultural offense is because why it needs so much dressing up, why it needs so much veiling is because there's essentially nothing underneath it. And that nothing, because it cannot be described and because we're so reliant on language, is very traumatizing. So it is social construction, but with the emotions that come with trying to cope with the void. The void that society cannot close. And that's how you can explain how emotions and psychology is also social. But it's not like underneath or inside us. It's nowhere but the construction of the quote-unquote social itself. It premises, it requires that. Yeah. Okay. Now, one thing I do have gotten from, you know, just skimming these, you know, beginners, Lacan, (laughs) this kind of literature, is that Lacan's theory is really come from a, an analysis of language. Yes. That, that all this is happening in language, correct, correct. Not, not in our brains, not in our minds, not in, uh, well, maybe our minds, because language and the mind maybe is the same thing. But then you're not outside, right? There's all these external factors. And so he's like, just the 
polar opposite of, say, a Marxist, for which, you know, you, you're talking about social relations, you're talking about material, you know, forces and such. This is really about language. So in what sense can we understand what he means by language? Is, is this language writ large? Is it language as in languages? Meaning if you exist in a different or use a different language, the self becomes constructed differently or this dynamic is also somehow, you know, yeah. the Chinese people, you know, rather Chinese language users would have a different self-other dynamic and, you know, and yeah. such. Um, yeah, so it is definitely historically contingent. But language essentially are signifiers. So the semiotic term is just whatever is the placeholder for meaning, right? So language carries meaning. It allows meaning to be shared. In fact, it is always shared meaning. So it's not necessarily the kind of distinct culture behind it or something like that. But essentially, all cultures would have to deal with this void too, you know, in the sense that there is always something that has to be described. And we describe it because we are attuned to something absent. But despite our best efforts to give it a name, to symbolize it, to code it, there's always a residue that demands further explanation. And this will go on ad infinitum until we encounter the void and get anxious. Right? So that's basically the Lacanian picture uh, in short. Language is just what facilitates the entire process, basically. Yeah. I mean, some people might listen to this and uh, say, well, that doesn't mean doesn't make sense because we seem to manage quite fine, you know, in our daily interactions, even over time, things get communicated and, you know, masses are mobilized on the basis of these identity structures, you know, single words can move thousands of people to act in particular ways. I mean, this lack that you speak of, is that an abstraction? Is it a kind of philosophical category? Uh, no, it's almost... Category? Uh, it's almost physical. I mean, it's affective, right? Why do we need to believe in anything? Because there's always a gap between what you know and what you say, right? There's always just that thing where you have to believe, right? Why do we need ideologies? Why do we need routine, right? It's always to organize the fact that at some point, not knowing is going to unsettle us or rather not knowing is really going to make us disintegrate, Right. But the knowing here is always social, quote-unquote, right? It's always, like, symbolic in that we are socialized already in certain social scripts that we know work, and we need those things in order to have an identity. So I would say that even the mundane taken-for-granted things are always veiling a deeper restlessness or fear of a lack. And in this lack, essentially, if we can just strip it down, it's a self and other interchanging dynamic that's trying to fill each other, basically, right? So that would be where I think the purchase is. But I would also say that the self and other works even at intimate levels, right? And this is where it plays out in more interesting ways because other people, unfortunately, are going to have to inhabit that space for us, whether it's family, whether it's a lover, right? And we're always, and this is how, you know, one, by now, by our age, Sharat, we kind of figure this out. There's always going to be a gap. There's always going to be discrepancy between what the quote unquote, the ego or the self needs and the other that is trying to be united with, trying to come to terms with, trying to understand. But I think it would be fair and be much, much healthier if we just accept that I'm lacking and with my own void, this other person in front of me is lacking their own void. And we just, can't be using each other to fulfill that, you know? And I think 
accepting that, accepting one's quote-unquote castration. Right now we're going to get into sexist language, but this is the residue of his Freudian attachment, right? Well, well that's the on uh, great joy, by the way, <laughs> castration. <laughs> so, so that's where it plays out too, because I think, you know, nurturing long relationships realize that it's not that we're totally reliant on this person or totally independent from this person, but just that as we are navigating our journeys, there is this other that we're always speaking to, right? And this is the fact that we are divided, thereby leading us to all sorts of interpersonal problems, you know? So, yeah. I, you know, I, I recently watched a movie, and the title of which is quite intriguing. It's an award-winning movie called uh, Call Me By Your Name. And there's a moment in the, with the two lovers in the movie where they call each other by the name that's not theirs, or what well, is theirs. So they're saying to the other, so I would say to you, I would call you Sharad, and you would call me Fuad. Why? Ah, okay. Well, precisely, right? Um, because it, so on one hand, it seems to be a gesture of intertwining the person, right? I mean, right, right. that somehow you and I are constitutive of right, each other, right. right? So that's the maybe the much more banal level of which this is operating. Sure, sure. I'm just wondering if it does have a, a deeper sense, because if you watch the entire movie, you have complex identities, some of them mirroring each other. and, and uh, But still, I'm not quite sure if we're getting to that that insight that Lacan has about our relationship with ourselves and how, you know, this external world to the extent that it exists, you know, impinges on that. Yeah. I think the first thing that's often sought for in choosing partners or whatever is a sort of quote-unquote mirror. And this has a benign sense to it in that we understand ourselves better through this person. This person is a good interlocutor. We can share our feelings and innermost thoughts, that kind of mirroring. Because there's so much of this person that I have in common with, which is another way of saying we're so similar, and there's a certain richness to it. But Lacan would argue that there's also a great deal of narcissism that's at work in order for that closeness to take place, right? And this harks back to the earlier formation of our personality during childhood before we get separated from our caregivers. We had this fullest attention given to us, right? And this is what allows us to be socialized, right? That we feel safe to enter the world in which we trust our parents to tell us is safe and good for us, so on and so forth. So this is going to be replicated with partners as well. But there's always going to be the end of the honeymoon period, right? Where the other person changes, I change, or rather, the narcissism cannot hold because there's always another <laughs> to it. So there's always this specter of otherness, and otherness is just another way of saying difference, alterity, avoid, right? There's something that we don't quite become familiar to, right? So the mirroring, the ideal where I can call you Sharat, you can call me Fuad, and therefore we're one, quote unquote, will always expire. Yeah. And in fact, it is narcissism insofar as it harks to the attachment that I think we all have experienced before with the caregiver to feel a certain degree of safety, affirmation, but it's also temporary, right? And for Lacan, if I have to break it down in very layman's terms, it's not healthy to keep wanting that, to keep wanting that first moment you fall in love or to keep wanting that first moment you enter a world, right? And feel new and fresh. That is almost the most dangerous myth you can have, right? And a lot of way, in a lot of ways, a lot of people yearn for that, you know, even well into their lives to want to feel that first time. So is there or have there been people before Lacan who say that somehow 
this void can be filled or that uh, this conflict can be resolved. I mean, you know, and I'm thinking not only of uh, Freud, but I'm also thinking of you know religious traditions yeah, yeah. that really promise us resolution. They promise us, you know, that they promise that this void is that you want to sort of. Um, Transcended, right? They they promise a transcendent moment, don't they? Yeah, they do. But also, always at a very high cost, right? Being a recluse and not wanting to pay the cost of dealing with frustrations caused by people, typically, right? And that's where our biggest battles are. It's not in the streets against you know the government or whatever. It's always coming back to. The people we can trust, or the people we can mirror, the people mirror. It always goes back to that tactile level of closeness, right? And that's for psychoanalysis, always that, right? Like that's where we struggle the most with the ties that bind. Now, for those people, whether they are like sages or mystics and all that, there's something about uh, we can romanticize them to say that they really reach a certain level of independence from others, that they have like sponsors or like people who can just. Support and some Islamic mystics do. They live off some millionaire to just say, "Well, you don't have to work. You don't really need other people. Just work on your work with God." Right? For that level of detachment from the world, right, in the name of wanting to be united with other, always comes at the price of not being able to deal with like the murkiness of everyday people, right? Because that's where you encounter the void closest, right? I don't know if the summary works. Yeah. So does Lacan have a therapeutic application? I mean, do people go to Lacanians to feel miserable? I mean, whatever it is that you feel when you're told that actually you can't want to reclaim that moment of, you know, initial bliss or oceanic joy or, or whatever it is that people apparently hearken yeah, yeah. for. I mean, that's the thing about like, I was dabbling into mysticism and mysticism for a long time. That was always the promise to be alone with the alone, to be one with the divine that entire source of the universe will be you will have the attention of the thing that created everything right that seems like pretty amazing you know to dangle to people right and i mean that's the entire prerogative that's what they want that's the kind of level of attention they want then more power to them right but i think there's a lot to be gained from just coming to terms with the void the fact that this is just and it's not that romantic some existentialists might want to romanticize the void, it creates poetry or whatever, but essentially think of it as something that's just like any other functioning organ, you know, like it's just how you are. This is how the the liver works. Well, that's how the void works. It'll keep making you desire, right? And you just have to kind of come to terms with the fact that not all of you will be complete and that will release you from a lot of unnecessary anxiety, you know? Has Lacan been superseded? I mean, are there psychoanalytic traditions that are critical of, oh, of yeah, the Lacanian point of view? And where have they taken the conversation? So <laughs> Lacan is even regarded as a pariah among psychoanalysts. If I'm not mistaken, the last I checked, and this is a while since I checked, the Lacanian frame isn't recognized by the IPA, International Psychoanalytic Association. So even, I mean, it's bad enough he's ostracized in philosophy, but even in psycho, the psychoanalytic tradition, he's seen as a pariah, right? But surprisingly, other than France, Latin America has been a very welcoming region for Lacanian ideas. So Argentina is, a, is mainstream Lacanian analysis. So, but Latin America is always an anomaly, right? Marxism is thriving there. Lacanianism is thriving there. So it has its own dynamic. But 
otherwise, if you talk about Asia, if you talk about India, if you talk about I mean, India is in Asia, but India has quite an interesting psychoanalytic tradition as well. But for the most part, Winnicott and Klein tends to be the major kind of schools. Yeah, Lacan's always been seen as too much of a maverick. Yeah. So let's wrap up. Anything comes to mind as recommendations? Perhaps that movie? Yeah, so I'm going to first suggest that you watch uh, Game of Thrones, the entire series, for what? I think it's six <laughs> seasons now, just to catch up with popular culture. Um, and of course, the movie, right? So Call Me By Your Name is the thing. It, it won awards at Sundance, and it tells the story of a young Jewish boy coming to aid during a summer holiday in the north of Italy. So a lot of things are in the mix, including the question of Jewishness, but also the question of sexuality, mm, uh, gender relations and such, and you know, family dynamics. It was actually a novel now made into a movie. Interesting. I've introduced this before, and I think in previous podcasts, but the introducing Lacan, a graphic guide by Darian Leader, is actually very good. It would give the reader an overview of Lacan's entire project. And Darren Leder himself, on his own right, is a good author. He's commented a lot on psychology and very critical of how it's becoming more and more commercialized as well. And his criticism comes from a Lacanian standpoint as well. So that's one recommendation that you can look into. Sharat, you're on Twitter too, right? Absolutely. I'm on Atcharat Kutin. If you want to interact with me, uh, don't do any other social media because all of it's so time consuming. Twitter's the only one I can seem to contain, though I'm very sad that they increased the character count. It's Why made... sad though? You can say more now. Well, you know, sometimes less is more. And I think uh, a certain economy is great if you want to improve your skills in language or, you know, in copywriting. Right. You really want to say something succinctly and you don't want, you know, because if you really want to have a platform to say what you want to say, then, you know, go on Facebook or something annoying like that because you can just pontificate right. endlessly on Facebook. There's no I don't know, word limit or whatever. You know, whereas Twitter was demanding, intellectually demanding. Right, um, right. Yeah, because least. you have to be pithy. And, yeah, absolutely. And it takes skill to be Yeah, but brief. then they doubled it. So yeah. it's not as pithy as it used to be. <laughs> How pitiful. In any case, <laughs> Ooh, uh, you can... so bad. <laughs> You can well, email the show at bfmnightschool at gmail.com. Look us up on Facebook, BFM Night School. Type that in the search space. You'll find a page. And also, yeah, download our app at the Apple App Store and Google Play. I'm Ahmad for Ahmad. Thanks a lot, Sharat. Always glad to have you here. Always a pleasure to be that here. That was Sharat Kutten and this is Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.